Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Ever wondered how a book gets made into a movie? Or how to master the art of cooking? Either way, we've got you covered with the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast. I'm Alan Nevins, a literary agent and talent manager. And I'm Joey Santos, a columnist and celebrity chef. On our podcast, we're going to be serving you a fresh perspective of the entertainment industry alongside our favorite celebrity guests. As we like to say, we don't dish, we serve. Listen and follow Two Guys from Hollywood on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll talk at you soon. It's Pharrell on the bench in the biggest way possible. Hanging out a bad seat, a broken eight, a bad apple with a bad attitude. Hanging around a bunch of bad attitudes, bad taste, bad life, bad dude, bad breath, bad attitude, bad vibes. Here we are on the FOTB podcast. People get very excited about it. This is certainly going to be a different type of show. I like to refer to this show as... Jeremy Spoken Class Today. Yeah. My friend Jeremy has dealt with the Pharrell Demic at the highest level like no other. He's had to deal with it from a life standpoint. None of this people coming on my shows on TV and on the podcast and talking about how. They're all holed up at home with their families and everything's fine and we're all hanging in there and we're watching Ozark three seasons and Breaking Bad and Sons of Anarchy and watching movies and somehow trying to find a way to all get along. That's what everyone says, the same stories of we're okay over here, we're hunkered down. That's not what this show is going to be about. This show is going to be about someone that's actually had this virus affect their lives like no other. It's not cool what's been going on. It's crazy what's been going on. So Jeremy's a good friend of mine, and he lives near me. And what he does for a living, this virus has shut him down. And it's affected his job, his business, his employees. He's got a lot of those. And everyone's suffering through this chaos. It's crazy. So, first of all, Jeremy, it's good to have you on the podcast. I'm sorry for what you're going through. It's crazy to see this happening to everybody. But it's even worse when it's friends of mine and people that I love and care about like you that are going through it. Have you ever even dreamt of any nightmare worse than this? Not in my worst nightmares would I ever think something like this would come to not only the city that I grew up in, but affect my business and my employees who I care about dearly and affect my family as this horrendous virus has. You're a New York City kid, and did I get it right? You grew up in the Bronx. Brooklyn. Brooklyn? What's the difference? Where in Brooklyn did you grow up? Canarsie. And tell everybody where Canarsie is. Canarsie is on the south shore of Brooklyn, not too far from Coney Island, in between Howard Beach and Coney Island, that section of Brooklyn. 
So when you grew up as a kid, did you used to go over to the Coney Island and ride the roller coasters? Yeah, of course. I actually used to drive my bike on the side of the Bell Parkway to get over to Coney Island. So when you were a kid and you got older and tougher, did you ever go over there and have to deal with any other hooligans and give them the business? Absolutely. That was part of growing up in Brooklyn. You had to get in fist fights. <laughs> Absolutely. So I know you to be a very tough SOB, very violent fighter. I've known you for a long time, and you've always been an MMA guy that is a black belt in what? Muay Thai, Jiu Jitsu, which is it? It's mixed martial arts. Whole slew. It's Muay Thai, Jiu Jitsu, kickboxing, grappling, karate, karate, wrestling. So when you were a kid, you didn't do that until later in life that you got into that. But when you were a kid, you just used your fist to beat people's faces in. Yeah, actually, I've been training since I'm seven years old in different types of martial arts. But as I got older, I got more into the mixed martial arts and the cage fighting as a hobby. So when you were a kid, before you got those belts, you had to learn the hard way, right? You go in and you get your ass beat and they train you and you go through different levels of belts, right? Like when you first start to getting to the point of being a black belt, it takes a long time and a lot of training, a lot of hours and a lot of abuse. Yes, absolutely. It took me 10 years to earn my black belt and that was actually the beginning of my martial arts. You know, some people think it's the end, but that's the beginning of your actual training when you become proficient at the art and that's when you could actually start to learn martial arts when you become a black belt. And that took me 10 years. I have a brown belt in a different style of karate, which is called Kempo. And that's something that I earned when I was a lot younger. So when you were a kid, before you got all these belts and started getting them, it took about 10 years to get black belts and brown belts and things of this nature is what you're saying to me. But when you were a kid and you were growing up in Brooklyn, you weren't doling out leg sweeps and kicks to people's torsos and ribs. You were punching people right in the face. Yeah, exactly. There was a lot of fish hooks and eye gouges and knuckle bites and ear bites and a lot of things that wouldn't be legal even in the cage. But it was just survival on the streets of Brooklyn. Brooklyn was a lot different when I was a kid than it is today. It was a different Brooklyn back then. And I did have an older brother who toughened me up and taught me the ways of the streets, so to speak. Only one brother? Only one brother. How old was he compared to you? He's nine years older than me. Oh, so he beat the crap out of you. Not really, because he was so much bigger than I was and so much older. But he was more of a father figure, but also was a pretty tough guy himself. And he taught me the ways of the street, let's put it that way. Did he he protect you and was nice to you as a brother? Yes, absolutely. Later in life, when you got older and you were a grown man and he was an older grown man, you could kill him. Now at this point, my brother probably outweighs me by about 50 pounds and is about five inches taller than me, but he knows that I could... That you could do damage. Absolutely. <laughs> so when you got older... Did you ever let him know, I'm going to beat your ass? No, because I never had to. But you just got along with him. Yeah, but he knows that I can now. <laughs> Between the two of us. He'll never admit it. But how did he know? Because he saw you winning all these belts. Yes. So he knew he didn't know that. Right. He knew that you could snap his leg. And he said to me, he said that he's created a monster beyond his control. So you never really followed him because he was almost 10 years older than you. He would have got your ass beat. But did he ever on the streets beat someone up for you? Yes. So someone would beat you up and then you would come home and cry and be like, I just got my ass whooped by this dude here. And he'd say, who was it? And then he'd go down there and beat their ass. Yeah, most <laughs> 
<laughs> most times, but we'd be hanging out on the street, and if somebody was older or bigger than me, and I mean, I got along with mostly everybody, but sometimes if somebody new on the block or whoever it was would maybe pick on me, especially when I was real young, and if I would come home crying, my brother would typically say to me, all right, we're going back out there. And I would say, oh, he's bigger, he's older than me. And my brother would say, don't worry about it. You just go after him and take care of business. And you don't come home crying to mama or come home crying to papa and come home crying to me. And my brother would take me out there and I would do what he said. And after that, I earned the respect of a lot of people. So he taught you how to fight. Pretty much. And then when you're growing up in that area, Brooklyn, how often did you have to get in fights? I would say I would get into a fight maybe two or three times a month at the very least. <laughs> two or three per month. Right. So you averaged about 36 fights a year. <laughs> Pretty much. So you're fighting more than MMA guys that are getting paid millions. Right. Right. I would say probably the most fights I got into when I was a kid, my parents got separated and my mother and I moved to Florida due to some financial circumstances and I was the youngest so she took me with her. And probably my first day of school, I think I got into three fights right after school because everybody started making fun of my Yankee Brooklyn accent is what they called me and I didn't stand for any of that. So wait, wait, wait. Where did you move in Florida? I moved to Fort Lauderdale. Fort Lauderdale on the Gold Coast. Very rich, great beaches, great hot chicks, everything else. You show up at some school. What grade were you in? Middle school? Third grade. Ooh, third grade. Yep. So you're in elementary school and they're giving you the business. Yep. I was getting picked on a lot. And they called you a Yankee? Exact words. And I said, I'm not even a Yankee fan. I'm a Met fan. And so they gave you the business. And then what did they say about your accent? They would make fun of my Brooklyn accent. You know, most of them had Southern accents and they would make fun of my Brooklyn accent. And then I would just lose my mind and wind up getting into a fight, getting in trouble. And I was in the principal's office more often than I was in regular class. So when you were in class and they would say something to you, for instance, like if the kid said... Hey, Yankee, nice accent. What would you say to him? I'll see you at 3 o'clock when the bell rings. When the bell rings, you're going to have a bad day. Right. And you let him know it was coming. Absolutely. You give him a little taste of, at 3 o'clock, we'll see who's laughing. Absolutely. It usually would run a yellow stripe down their back, and they would shut up, but I still didn't give up at 3 o'clock. So wait a minute. I don't understand. Tell me, what is the stripe about? The yellow stripe. You know, they just lost their nerve. You know, they would pick on me and pick on me, and then when I came back at them, I said, all right, you know, you could say whatever you want, but I'll see you at 3 o'clock. And then at 3 o'clock, they didn't have the onions to fight with you. No, they showed up, and they had a beating. <laughs> How long did you live in Fort Lauderdale? My mother couldn't make it. She started a, believe it or not, a balloon delivery business, and she just couldn't make it financially. And we were only there for about eight months or so. And I was so happy to return and come back to my life and my friends. I had no friends there, and I was very happy to come back. I had a lot of friends back in Brooklyn, and I was happy to see my older brother again and my older sister. And it was just great to come back. I really didn't enjoy the time in Florida. So when you were down there, you averaged, it sounds like, a fight a day. In Florida, I would say about a fight a day, at least for the first <laughs> few weeks that I was there. And then what did the principal say to you about your shenanigans? My mother had to be called up to school, and yeah, I was in a lot of trouble, mostly for fighting, not for grades or acting like a punk or being disrespectful because I was never like that. I was always taught to have respect for my teachers and for elders. So I was always very respectful, but when you picked on me, I always retaliated. I've been in the principal's office many times with my smart mouth, and I have been in all kinds of trouble with the principal. I've been kicked out of school. But when you were in there and he was giving you the business, did you tell him 
that the kids are picking on me, so I beat their ass after school. So this is what's going to happen. You want to say things to me about my accent and that I'm a Yankee and everything else, I'm going to beat your ass, and it's going to happen again. Or did you cower to him and say, I'm so sorry, sir? How did it go? No, absolutely not. I was seven or eight years old, but handled myself well. I was obviously very respectful to the principal and... I remember my mother sitting there and my mother even basically backed me up and said the same thing. I just basically told the principal that that's not the way I was raised, it's not the way I was brought up and if somebody's going to pick on me, I was taught to defend myself and stand up for myself and was not going to take any garbage from anybody. So when you went back to Brooklyn, did the fighting continue? Were you averaging 36 fights a year? No, definitely not. I had a lot of friends. So it dropped down significantly to what, more like 20? (laughs) No, a lot less than that. 15, 12? Maybe one a year. Oh, so now you went from 36 fights a year to one main event per year. So it was like a big payday fight. Pretty much. And then what would get you in a fist fight once a year? What would that person do to upset you enough to get in a fight? Or was that just to stay in shape? (laughs) Was that just, I need to go out and beat some ass today just for shacks and giggles? You just thought you'd get your rocks off and hit someone in the face? No, there was no training involved. I wasn't training for any competitions back then or anything. It was just kind of survival in Brooklyn and the area that we grew up in. One funny story about while I was still in Florida is... I actually got into a fight during school, again, because the kid was picking on me and bullying me and uh, making fun of the way I talked and the way that I dressed was differently from then. I think I even had a gold chain on back then in the 80s, and that wasn't something too popular. I have a gold chain on now. Are you suggesting that you want to fist fight me again? No, I had the gold chain on, so I'd be right there with you. You do not like my gold chain. No, it's actually really nice. I think Thank I had you. the same one when I was getting picked on. I have the gold wrist, too. <laughs> I had one of those as well. I like those. And I was out in the schoolyard when this happened, and when the teacher separated us, I'd never seen a red ant in my life growing up in Brooklyn, and the teacher actually made me sit in a red ant hill. And again, remembering my brother and just trying to be as tough as I thought I was when I was a kid. She made you sit on a red anthill? So I sat on a red anthill, never seen a red ant in my life. And I sat there and just, again, trying to be as tough as I could. And I didn't want to show anybody else that I was getting eaten up alive by these ants. They're evil. I sat on the hill the entire recess because that's when I had this altercation during our recess. And I sat there the entire time. And that's actually another time that my mother wasn't called to school, but she actually went up to school because she was very upset. About the red ants. About the circumstances. Do you think if a woman today, in this day and age, made a kid sit on a red ant hill, she would be fired? Absolutely. From her job. She would never work again in childcare. Absolutely. Back then, that was almost like an acceptable punishment. Can you imagine? Not in this day and age. But I've gotten attacked by red ants before, like on my legs. Those things, they sting you, basically. They, They bite you. Absolutely. They're evil. Yeah, I was eight years old. I was covered with them. So you got a million red ant bites? Yep. And then I bet you didn't like her too much anymore moving forward. Nah, I mean, I really didn't like being in Florida at seven or eight years old, however old I was. No friends. We lived in a community. It was mostly elderly, retired people. I had no friends, and I just, period, didn't like it. Not saying that I don't like to vacation in Florida. I actually love it, but... It wasn't fun for an eight-year-old kid coming from Brooklyn to be put in that setting. And then at some point or another, you moved to northern New Jersey. Yes. And you set up shop 
and you had a big family. How many kids do you have and a wife? Married, three beautiful kids, beautiful wife. Two girls and a boy. Yeah, my son is 15, daughter's birthday is next month, will be 14, and my youngest is nine. And I know all of these kids and your dog. You have a nice dog. Yeah, yeah, he's a good dog. You know, your dog is very frustrated when I'm over at your house because when people come over, you don't let the dog out. Unlike my dog, who I always let out because he weighs 120 pounds and he means business. And when you show up at my house, my dog attacks you. That's what you don't like. You don't want your dog attacking people. Yeah, because he's a boxer and, you know, he paws at everybody. And he's a very friendly dog. He's a very gentle dog. But we try to keep him away from people because he gets so excited and we just don't want him to scratch or hurt anyone. My dog used to, when people came over, he would get so excited he'd pee all over the floor. So no matter who you were, if he saw you and he was so happy to see you, he'd just start peeing all over you and all over the floor. Every single time I came home from work at night, it would pee all over the floor. I'd get home at 3.30 in the morning, the dog would start peeing on me. Right. We've had some episodes with that, but we all love the dog. He's part of the family, as I'm sure your dog is, and he's like one of my kids. So when you moved from Brooklyn to northern New Jersey into the woods, into the rich peopleville and all the phonies that live out here and all the money that's out here in the woods with the bear and turkeys and deer and coyotes and bucks and everything else. What did you think? Was that like a reality check or like a culture shock for you being from Brooklyn and then coming out here to these suburbs? Not really. I wanted my wife and family to grow up in a nice place and be comfortable. And I work a lot, so I'm not really home much. And we have a few friends in town. My wife has a lot more than I do. You're one of our closest friends, you and your wife. And it wasn't really a shock because I'm not home often. You know, I put in a lot of hours and I work a lot. But do you like living in this area or do you miss living in Brooklyn? Well, Brooklyn has changed so much. It's not the same Brooklyn that I grew up in. So I don't want to say I miss Brooklyn. I like it here. I think it's a nice place for the family. But as you said, there are people that I don't fit in with, a lot of snobby, wealthy people. And I'm a very down-to-earth type of guy. And a lot of the people here are not part of my scene. <laughs> well, a lot of the people here, you and I both don't like. And we want to beat their ass, which is a nice way of saying that in Portuguese. <laughs> it's true. Absolutely. Well, you and I go out and we talk about who we want to beat up. Well, you're a regular guy, so... That's who I like to hang out with, just regular people. I'm not into the scene with money. and The social scene. The social butterflies. Exactly. I like people that are down to earth. Normal people. Exactly. There's not many of them around here. That's true. Or in my snotty neighborhood. You know this neighborhood. This is where everyone goes trick-or-treating. You know how they all come here for Halloween, and you and I have walked around the neighborhood and talked about chicks and who has a wussy husband that we want to beat up i mean let's just be honest we've done that i think almost every year on halloween it's true and we steal kids candy which is awesome <laughs> it is true are you ready for the nation's first and only free 24-hour network dedicated to you the betting and fantasy sports enthusiast sports grid will provide you with real-time content statistics and gaming intelligence unlike anything you've ever seen before Located both in the heart of New York City and inside the FanDuel Sportsbook at the Meadowlands, SportsGrid is live 18 hours a day, here to serve you, the fanatic. This is SportsGrid. Get on the grid.
Have you written a book and need some insight into what comes next? Or are you passionate about cooking and want to know how to make it your career? Or maybe you just want to hear insider stories about the entertainment industry. Either way, we've got you covered with the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast. I'm Alan Nevins, a literary agent and talent manager. And I'm Joey Santos, a columnist and celebrity chef. And on our podcast, Two Guys from Hollywood, we bring our expertise to the table with, of course, delicious cocktails and all kinds of recipes for you to try at home. So grab a drink and join us. We've got a wide range of celebrity guests and Hollywood insiders to discuss pop culture, publishing, and entertainment. And we'll provide you with an unfiltered and sometimes brutally honest show about Hollywood. As we like to say, we don't dish, we serve. Listen and follow Two Guys from Hollywood on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll talk at you soon. So your business has been absolutely ravaged by the Pharrell-demic, the virus. It has shut down small businesses and every business that I know of. I mean, what's open? Gas stations and the grocery store? That's about it. The hospitals. Right. I mean, my business actually is considered essential because it's dry cleaning and laundry. So it is still allowed to be opened and we are allowed to operate. Unfortunately, I don't have any customers left. I mean, when I say any, you go from thousands to having maybe a handful that you can count on one hand that are still requiring and using the service. So although we're allowed to operate because we're deemed essential, there is no business and there are no funds to operate the business and there is no cash flow. Why, if it's so essential, which it is, I could see where people don't want to have their condos and apartments cleaned. I forgot to mention that I'm also in the housekeeping business, so we clean apartments as well. But that business is not deemed essential, so the housekeeping portion of it closed down before I actually had to close down the dry cleaning end of it. Give me the phases of your business. What exactly do you do? We clean mostly in metro areas, high-end luxury residential cleanings of apartments. For the residents that live in the buildings, they get to clean either once a week or every other week or once a month or as they need it. And we are also, our core business is also dry cleaning and laundry where we pick up and deliver dry cleaning and laundry to high-rise residential buildings throughout Brooklyn, Long Island City, Manhattan, and in New Jersey. And so if the average person were to understand that business, what would you call it? The cleaning service of the condos and then the dry cleaning and everything else. I know not the name of your company, but the business itself. Is there a genre? Is there a name for it? It's basically two different divisions, dry cleaning, and there's a lot of umbrellas underneath the dry cleaning tag, which would be laundry, laundered shirts, wash and fold for towels and undergarments and sheets. So it's like a valet for all the stuff. Exactly. And that's part of what we also have. We also have what's called valets, what you would think of a traditional valet parking lot, but we're called a valet and which we have a location inside some of these high-rise residential luxury rental properties and condominiums. Okay, I could see why the cleaning end of it is shut down because everyone's afraid of getting the virus, so they don't want somebody in their condo, an apartment. I actually have a cleaning service here, and we haven't had them here since this started. Usually they come every week, and I was like, there's no reason to have these chicks here because it's too dangerous. You want to self isolate, you want to be with your family, nobody else, you don't have people coming and going from your crib, no different than condos or apartments. Is that why they shut that end of it down? Yeah, absolutely. A big part of it. We started getting cancellations as the virus started ravishing New York City, so we started getting cancellations. Not permanent cancellations, just 
postponements because nobody really knew how long this was going to last for. So they would say, hey, can I just cancel the housekeeper for this week or for the next two weeks or for the next month and then we'll reinstate. So we just got really postponements, not cancellation, so to speak, on the housekeeping side. And it just got to the point where most of the buildings at that point were not letting the housekeepers even pass the front desk. It became banned in most of the buildings. So even though we were giving all of our housekeepers the protective gear and telling them to follow CDC guidelines and personal hygiene and giving them all the tools that they needed to stay safe, we also felt at some point that as responsible business owners that it was not even safe to send our employees out into the field for the few remaining customers that still wanted the service. And I got to say one thing about our customer base. They've been actually so helpful and supportive. And actually when they've postponed the services, they've actually offered to continue to pay for the services. That's how generous they were and how much they admire the job that we've done and the job that my housekeepers perform on a weekly basis when cleaning their apartments. They were concerned that the housekeepers would still be able to make a living and that my business would still be able to get an income. But as a responsible business leader, once again, it was something that I could not accept. And I just offered them that they could certainly take care of their housekeeper individually once they returned back to work. But as far as paying my company for services that we weren't providing due to the postponements, that was something as a business leader that I couldn't accept. But it was a very gracious offer. Why not accept it? How many housekeeping staff do you have? And how did they react? Did they know that these people offered to pay them anyway and they still weren't going to get it because you couldn't accept it? Why did you make that decision and how many people did it affect? It wasn't many. It was a few gracious people that had put that offer in. We accepted direct tips for individual housekeepers, which got the tips once we accepted them. But what I couldn't accept was not so much for the housekeeper. What I couldn't accept was the offering to continue to pay my company, which is something that I just could not accept. I made the decision not to accept an offer of payment for a service that we weren't providing. I was perfectly fine with anybody that wanted to take care of their individual housekeeper. I had no problem with that. And if they wanted to put a tip on their credit card, we made sure that the housekeeper got that. Or my best advice was when we return, you could certainly leave a tip, a cash tip for the housekeeper, you know, inside your apartment. Did the staff know that you decided against that? Like, did they know that some people wanted to keep paying them and that you weren't having it? Yeah, they were aware of it, and especially the ones that actually got tipped. So, I mean, they were obviously made aware of it because they got tipped. Were they upset about it? Not really. They understood that really they weren't performing a service. I think, that, again, the, the customers were just being really gracious and appreciative of all the years of service that we've provided them, an excellent service that we've provided. And I think they were just making a really kind, generous gesture, but it was just something that I couldn't take. Everybody's going to have a lot of economic trouble going forward, and I appreciate all the gestures. But as a responsible business, I felt that it was not the right thing to do to charge my existing customers that have been with me for many years for a service that we were not performing. So the dry cleaning part of it, is it tumbled because people aren't going to work? Exactly. And so they're not wearing the clothes. Exactly. They're not wearing the suits. They're not wearing the dress shirts. They're not going anywhere. They're trapped in their condos and they're not going to their gigs. So there's no reason to clean clothes. Exactly. So like I said, that part of the business, that branch of the business is deemed essential. So being that it was deemed still essential because there are some vital needs to get laundry cleaned, most of our clients are high-end clientele, very affluent, and have exited the city in mass drones about three or four weeks ago, I would say. So about 50% of our clients had fled the city prior to this epidemic worsening. And the other 50% are hunkered down inside their apartments and working from home or unemployed at the moment. And they're in their sweatpants and pajamas, so there is actually no need for any dry cleaning services, which is the bread and butter and one of the core services that we provide. So you're telling me that all the rich people, when they, what, heard that in China that people were getting this virus and in Italy they were getting this virus, you're telling me that the majority of the people that live in New York City 
fled? Where did they go? Because the shore was closed down. The Hamptons was closed down. Where did they go? I'm not really sure. And I don't like to use the word rich for my clients, but I would say well-to-do. That's a nice word for rich, <laughs> just so we're clear. If they're well-to-do and they have the means, those are the people that left when they were able to get out. It wasn't in January. It wasn't in February. It was really in the beginning of March. It wasn't when everything that we were seeing on the news with Italy and in China. It was when the city started to get bad, and we were expecting a lot of debts. And when the pandemic actually started to hit the city, there was like a mass exodus. All right, so wait. When they left, do they tip you off that they're going to be leaving and that they're not going to need their services? Only if they had housekeeping services, which they needed to cancel. As far as dry cleaning goes... They just screw you. Well, not really screw because they're not on any type of a contract or weekly basis. They send in a bag as they need their dry clean done. So they just packed up and left. And then they weren't turning in clothes. Right, because they weren't there. So when you pick up their dry cleaning, do they call and place an order or do they just leave the bag in the building and you get it and you know it's their stuff because of their bag and you go and handle your business? Exactly. Every Every building that we service has their own custom bag with our branded logo and the logo of the building. They're all different color bags, but everybody's bag is barcoded individually. So what they do is we operate in only 24-7 operated buildings, which have a concierge and a front desk. And if it's not one of our on-site valet locations where we accept the items directly, like you would see at a traditional dry cleaner, it's left at their front desk, which is manned 24-7. There's no need to call us. We pick up every day, Monday through Saturday, and it's typically next day service automatically. So we pick up and then we deliver back the next day. No need to call us. No need to go on our a website, no need to go onto an app unless you need something through those mediums, and you certainly can, but otherwise we make it very simple, no need to contact us, just drop and go, and we'll be there and pick it up automatically every day. So it's a real seamless operation, and people love it. They don't have to lift a finger. They don't even need to know you. They know who you are. They know you do a great job. They leave their stuff. You bring it back perfectly, exactly the way they like it, and that's why they use you. Now, when you had your peak of your business, your operations in New York City. Let's just focus on New York City because I think that's a majority of your business. Yes. So when you're at your peak, how many people are we talking about here using the service? Thousands? Yes, thousands. Let's say, hypothetically, is it 5,000? It could be at the height. Yeah, it could be 5,000 between dry cleaning and housekeeping customers. Okay. So you went from, let's say, at a peak of 5,000, and when did you realize that it was tumbling and you had a problem because they were leaving in March. You're like, something's going on here. And then at what point did you start freaking out because you noticed that it was nosediving? It practically happened overnight. I would say maybe somewhere around the 10th or so, we started to see these uh, major declines. And then I would say by around the 15th or 17th of March is when we saw the business completely fall off the cliff. So when you say that it went off the cliff. It went from the peak of 5,000 to how bad did it get? Is it down to nothing? Or is it down to a couple hundred? Is it down to nothing? It's down to a few, I would say a handful. I wouldn't even say a hundred. We have some uniforms that were being cleaned at some point. We tried running that for an additional two weeks after we had actually shut down most of the operations, including the housekeeping business. We were picking up some uniforms from some staff, but that attempt became futile and also very dangerous for me because I was doing it personally and concerns about my family and the health of the remaining staff that I had left. You have a problem now on your hands because you've lost all your customers. And I believe that when the world gets back to normal, which I do believe will happen, I think this will pass. You know, all you have to do is look at, frankly, China. They went from disaster, utter chaos and death and doom and gloom to now it seems that it's turning the corner. They're not reporting deaths. They've talked about that they are opening up 
business again and people are going back kind of slowly to their normal routine and lives. So I believe that at some point or another, Italy, Spain, all of Europe, and then the United States, it's horrific here what's happened in New York City. It's crazy. And then LA, California, Detroit, Florida, it's everywhere. It's literally everywhere. But some places, it's way worse than others. Not that I know anything, but New York's number one, right? And then California and Detroit, all these I haven't heard this same kind of problem, frankly, in like Chicago. It's the craziest thing. You haven't heard about everybody suffering in Chicago. Now, I'm not picking cities here. Seattle had it really bad. Washington, Kirkland, all that. So I do believe, do you, that it will get back to normal and that you will get your customers back, that they'll move back to their condos and they'll get back to doing the services, the dry cleaning pickup and their concierge housekeeping. Yeah, I do believe it will come back. I don't know if we'll ever be back to normal 100%, but I do believe it will come back. My customers will move back into their apartments, their New York City dwellers. Why wouldn't it go back to normal? I think it's going to take a very long time, but I believe that the social distancing and some type of our cultures will change undoubtedly because of the mindset of people and what we've become accustomed to for these last several weeks. Dry cleaning is a perfect way. I don't need to know you to have my dry cleaning picked up and done. Dry cleaning definitely will come back. The housekeeping will come back. What I'm saying is that I have a feeling it's going to take a very long time. We can't just turn on a light switch. Like I like to say, revive Frankenstein from the dead. It will take time. I believe that my business has a great and strong brand. We have a lot of customers that will be returning that love our service. That definitely will be returning. So I think I'm going to get a majority of my customers back. Just I don't know when and how long that's going to take. So when your business basically shut down and you couldn't do anything, you couldn't pay your employees, did you have to lay them all off? Did you have to fire them? What did you have to do? And then you had your own problems where you have a giant warehouse facility and that you obviously lease it, right? And have to pay the piper on that. Yes. How in God's name have you dealt with that. Now, I know you and you're one of my best friends and I've seen you stress out before when everything's running normal and business is booming and everything's peaking and you're at full operation. You're a guy that, in my opinion, God love you, don't punch me in the face, but you're stressed out even when things are good. Like you're a dude that doesn't sleep. When things are good, you're freaking out because you're just overwhelmed with work and you never stop working. You're a guy that grinds like no one I know. So when it's good, you're miserable. And when it's bad, I don't even want to know your misery. <laughs> That's how scared of you I am. When it's bad, I can't imagine what you're like. So what happened with your employees and with your building that you have to pay rent on? How can you do that when you don't have your business running and making money? You can't. And unfortunately, the housekeepers were laid off first as that division of the business went almost down to zero. And like I said, once the buildings made the decision, it was kind of on the back of my mind and they helped me make it up for me. But once the buildings announced, which you know I give them a lot of credit for, but once they announced they were not allowing housekeepers up, only immediate family members that lived in the apartment or caretakers were allowed past the front desk. Again, this was several weeks ago before this dynamic really changed and got worse than it was. The housekeepers, and it broke my heart because I have 
have very, very, very hardworking people, very loyal people, housekeepers that have been with me 12, 15 years and almost brought tears to my eyes that I had to let these people go because I could not afford to pay them and make the payroll. How did you suffer through that experience of having to tell people, I got to let you go? It was horrible. It was the worst thing that I've ever had to do in my life and the worst decision that I've ever had to make. Did you tell them that you would bring them back? Absolutely. We told them all to stand by. We told them to collect whatever benefits they can. Anything that I could personally do to help them, I certainly would be there. And what did they do? Most of them went on unemployment. They had a very hard time getting on the website. New York State unemployment was completely overloaded. The site kept on crashing and they've had some difficulties. But as far as I know, most of them now are collecting benefits and they'll get any of these checks that are only on from the government, hopefully very soon. How many people are we talking about? I staff almost 100 employees. And that's on both ends of it? Yes. First it was the housekeeping. And then what about the people that run the warehouse? Then the dry cleaning, we went down to a four-day shift instead of a six-day shift, which I normally run to produce all of the work and get next day service for my clients. And then we went down to a three-day shift. And even at that point, there was almost nothing coming in. I was sending out four or five trucks a day. They were coming back empty. It wasn't even covering the fuel for the trucks to go out. And it just got to the point where employees were coming in for an hour or two a day, and even with the skeleton crew at that point. So unfortunately, I had to tell my staff and some very good people, again, the hardest decision I've ever had to make in my life, that there was no cash flow coming in, and I could not afford to keep them on any longer. So what happened with your landlord in terms of your building? Obviously, you have to pay a lease there. You can't make that payment. What do you do when you're in that kind of a desperate situation? Is that guy hard to deal with? Very, very, very difficult to deal with. We've had other landlords because I have many locations. We've had other landlords in the past that have been helpful. You know, I've always said I was in business during 9-11. We made it through there. We've lost some very, very dear customers back then, some dear friends. But we were able to make it through 9-11. I was actually located in Queens at that time. The landlord owned many properties in Queens. He was a very reasonable person, and he understood that we were just attacked. And he gave me a 25% reduction for six months on my rent, which was very helpful and that helped me stay in business during that tough period. And then during Hurricane Sandy, almost the same situation, just not as long and obviously not as devastating to the entire country. That was just devastating to our region. But I had a landlord that was very forgiving and forgave completely two months' worth of rent, which again helped me get back on my feet, and we revived the business back up to our peak of, like you said, around those 5,000 customers, you know, within a couple of weeks. And what about now? Now I'm thinking outwards of at least a month to get back to some type of business, but a long recovery ahead of several months. But the landlord that I have now at our main facility is not budging whatsoever. And I actually got a letter from him today stating that the rent was passed due by one day and he's taking any legal action that he possibly can. Even tried to have a conversation with him and brought him into my office about three weeks ago when I saw this coming and just would not budge or would not move one inch. Want to light the lamp on DraftKings and FanDuel this NHL DFS season? Then join DailyRoto.com and learn from the best daily fantasy sports players. Get updated fantasy hockey projections for NHL DFS, line combinations, and build stacks for tournaments in the Daily Roto NHL DFS lineup optimizer. If you are playing daily fantasy hockey without using Daily Roto, you are doing it wrong. Enter the promo code ACTION for a 10% discount. That's promo code ACTION for a 10% discount. Hey everyone, it's Michelle Williams, and I love being able to share my story with you on my podcast, Checking In with Michelle Williams, where my guests and I get real as we share the ups and downs of our mental health journeys, and I'd love for you to join me. I'm still on my own journey, but I want to be transparent with you, because as I was posting all the highlights of my life on social media, I was breaking down. And too many people fall victim to the picture-perfect image of the high life, so I created a space to discuss the good and the bad. We can laugh, man. We're going to learn. And most of all, 
I hope to inspire you to go on this journey with me to better mental health. This is going to be your church, your turn up and everything in between. So join me on my podcast, Checking In with Michelle Williams, a safe space for every kind of person. Listen to Checking In with Michelle Williams every Tuesday, a part of the Black Effect on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So how are you going to deal with that? Not quite sure. If any of your listeners or anybody that's out there that can give me some advice, but not quite sure. Contacting my attorney today, and I'm waiting for a call back. But in the midst of all this economic worries, now I would have to worry about paying an attorney to defend this action because I do need my facility operating. We've heard a lot of people talking about business loans, and I know that the unemployment office has been brutal to deal with all over the country. 10 million people are unemployed. You talked about the New York State one has crashed and that people can't even get unemployment. They're still waiting for an answer and people are desperate and people are broke and people have nothing. They can't feed their families. They can't pay their rent. They can't do anything. I can't even fathom what it's like to get a business loan. How do you approach that problem? Have you gone to try to do that, get a business loan? Yeah, absolutely. And that's been a complete disaster, despite what we're all seeing on the news. That's been a complete disaster. I have many friends that are in business that are experiencing the same exact thing that I am. And what I'm experiencing is on the 21st, we submitted our disaster relief through the SBA where you're supposed to get $10,000 almost immediately within a couple of days, whether you're approved or you're not approved, it's an instant $10,000. I own four different companies. We actually applied for all four, obviously, and we have yet to see a penny of that. And again, that was submitted on around the 21st of March. I haven't heard anything. When you go to the website, if you could even get on, it says that it's pending still. So what do you think of that? I think it's absolutely appalling. If we don't get the small businesses running, which I'm considered small business, you know, I'm not an airline. Even though I'm a large in my space, I'm still considered a small business. And I think it's absolutely appalling. And it's going to devastate the entire country. And it's going to trickle down to everybody. If the small businesses don't get back on their feet and get running and they need money in their hands immediately, not another day can go by. So when you see these politicians on television every day saying that they're going to get the money to people as soon as possible with the business loans. I've watched them on CNBC. I watched them on CNN. I've watched them on MSNBC, you name it. And the president with his minions and even the House Speaker. I saw that Pelosi talking about we need to get this money to these small businesses ASAP. These people cannot survive without this money. The government has to help these people. And then everything that we're seeing on television, all the news channels, all of it is a load of BS. It's not true. It's the exact opposite is happening. I can tell you firsthand, it is not happening. I don't know how I could stress that. I have many friends. It's just not happening. Our bank, which we were told we were only able to bank with this particular bank, is still not ready. This law was passed on Friday, and it is still not ready. Today is now Wednesday, and every day and every minute that's taking down is the closer that's going to bring many businesses to completely close their doors forever. There will never be any recovery, and that's going to trickle down to the entire economy. So when you go to the bank and talk to them about your 
problems. What do they say? Well, we got some answers today, finally. Still no application submitted and no way to submit an application, which is somewhat understandable, but very frustrating as a business owner who needs to get back on their feet. They are saying that there are a lot of internal problems. This was just signed on Friday, and there's staffing issues. They're just not geared up to handle the amount of volume. Our country has never seen anything like this, and we just do not have the infrastructure, not only for our health and for vaccines to be created and to help all the people that are ill from this terrible virus. Our infrastructure is not set up. Our banking infrastructure is not set up. The SBA is not set up to handle the amount of calls and the amount of emails that are coming in, the applications that are coming in, and that's bottlenecking businesses. And I'm afraid that most businesses won't be able to survive. How much longer can they last? Like you said, there's rent to pay, there's utilities to pay, there's payroll, which comes first and foremost. You need a staff. So what would happen if you got these loans miraculously, if that were to actually happen? You applied for four business loans and you've heard nothing. What would happen if you actually heard something and got the money? Would you be able to manipulate that into survival? No. It's not even enough. The 10K for each company, which obviously would equate 40,000, is a drop in the bucket for the size company that I have. That's an absolute drop in the bucket. That's going to absolutely do nothing except pay some current bills that we may owe now, just as an immediate, which would run out in a few days. But the disaster relief is big, and that we have not heard one response or one peep because the SBA is completely overloaded. The new loan that I'm talking to you about that I heard a little bit about today is called the PPP, which is mainly for payroll reasons, for rent and utilities, which could be forgiven up until a certain point. But we're not getting anything from there. So my hope is is to get funded enough to get us through these next couple of months until business does start to come back and the economy starts to slowly revive itself. So even if you get these loans, hypothetically... You're going to have to obviously answer to those loans and pay those back. Do you think it's a completely lost year or two years? Well, the PPP loan, most of it is forgiven. As long as you use it for payroll, for utilities, and for rent, that will be forgiven. And that keeps on changing. The SBA, from what I'm hearing from the banks, that keeps on changing by the hour. And that's what's delaying a lot of these banks as soon as they come up with some paperwork. From what I understand, the SBA changes some of the guidelines and some of the rules, and then the banks have to scurry while they're short-staffed to redo paperwork because everything obviously has to be legal. So there's a lot of legality problems with it. But to answer your question, the PPP loan, which is what we're looking at right now, which is different from the SBA disaster loan, the PPP loan is forgiven as long as you use it for payroll, rent, and utilities. Anything else that you may need it for, which we may need it for some other obligations that we have, is not forgiven. And that turns into a loan that was supposed to be a 10-year loan at 4% interest. The latest I've heard this morning was now that's turned back into a two-year loan, which is the unforgiven portion, at 1% interest. So do you think this is worse than... 9-11 and Sandy or the two of them combined, is it worse than that? I think this is worse than every single thing that has happened to this country, World War II, the Great Depression, 9-11, 
Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane Katrina, anything you could possibly think of, I think this is worse than all of that wrapped up into one. I've grown up in New York City, and I've actually personally been on the truck for the last two weeks, going into the city to pick up whatever scraps we could pick up. And I've never seen in, in my 47 years the city so completely desolate, and it's a very eerie feeling. What is it like? Are you freaking out mentally, physically? What has it done to you? All of the above. Haven't really slept much. Constantly, constantly just thinking about my business and thinking about how I'm going to get my business back on its feet to support my family. I have a very lovely family, and that's my only concern, to be honest. If I was a single guy, I would certainly have my concerns, but at 47, after building this business my entire life and building an unmatched reputation and brand, throughout New York City. I have an excellent rapport with a lot of business owners, building owners, and building managers. And after building a business your entire life, I'm very skeptical. You feel like it's the worst thing that's ever happened, but you're still sitting here looking at me, believing that somehow, some way, you're gonna turn this around. You're not giving up or losing all hope. You actually have told me that you think somehow, some way, that this is gonna, and and that you're going to save face. Absolutely. I think if the banks can get their act together between the government and the SBA and get money into the hands of small businesses immediately, not even another day can go by. But if they get it into the hands immediately into many small businesses, including my company, there is no doubt that I can come back from this. I started from scratch. I started from nothing. And if I have to do it again, I will. We just need the assistance from the government because this was not due to anything that we did. This was basically a shutdown of the entire country due to this virus. So I believe once we have the funds in place and we can get the business moving, rehire my employees, get them back to work, get their families fed. I sincerely believe that we will make a very big comeback and come back bigger and better than ever. And you know that I know a bunch of these magnets that own these buildings. Between the two people that we know, we've talked about one of them's a big, famous NFL owner, and the other one's the guy that owns my business. You know, he owns all these buildings in Manhattan. What we need to do is take over both of their businesses. We need to get all of their buildings and run those and then make tons of money. What we need to do is take advantage of the NFL owner. We need to take advantage of the horse racing owner and take all of their buildings and make you more money than ever. That's what we need to do. Take over their buildings and then take over their money and take over their women. Yes, that's the plan. That's my plan. I think that we should do that. Sounds good to me. Then we could talk about partnership. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> now, let me ask you, the training that you've done, one day I decided to go train with you and see if I could handle your punching and kicking. And I held a giant pad and had you blast me a few times with your leg kicks and punches. How did that go for me? I think you enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I really enjoyed flying across the room. It was great. I can't get enough of that where you kicked me and I flew 20 feet in the air and crashed and landed and said, thanks, I've had enough of this. That was a lot of fun. Here, where do I sign up to have you 
blast me a few more times with your leg kicks and your punches where you hurt me. Where do I sign up? All kids should go through the process of having you punch them and kick them in the face. Well, listen, I don't claim to be a bad guy at all. Yes, you are. You're a lot tougher than you make it sound, and you took those punches, and you took those kicks in stride, and it was a great day training with you, and I would love to get back to training with you one day soon. So you know that the UFC is having their event on the 18th on a private island. They're going to have the Tony Ferguson fight with Justin Gaethje because Habib pulled out. He's in Russia. He can't get anywhere. He can't leave the country. So now they're going to have these other guys fight. They're going to have this fight card on ESPN Plus. They're going to have a pay-per-view UFC event. And he said, Dana White, that they are going to start having all their international fights on this island because they bought the island. You know you're doing well when your company's worth $5 billion and you buy an island somewhere to have everyone show up and get a tan laying at the beach and then at night you go see the UFC card full of people trying to kill each other. Do you think with the Pharrell Demick going on and the virus going on, it's a good idea to have a bunch of people fighting in the octagon? Well, I don't know how safe it is for anybody to be training at this point. I could say one thing to your audience and to your fans. I believe it would be good to at least see some type of sporting event. And any kind of sporting event would be great to break the monotony in people's homes and just the stress in their lives, anything they, they love to watch. I can't wait for sports to come back. I actually think it's a good thing. I would just be concerned about how somebody could prepare and train for a fight under these conditions. Who are your favorite fighters? That you like. I mean, you know a lot of them. A lot of the Tiger guys fought. Yeah, I mean, some of my friends, I would say, that I've trained with are really my favorite fighters. But George St. Pierre was one of my favorite fighters back in the day. But I'm just a big fan of MMA in general. But some of my closest friends are professional fighters that I've trained with in the past. And I tend to root for them the most. Just guys you trained with and, and got on a mat with and, and fought with? Absolutely. I've trained with them. And they're excellent people. Unbelievable athletes and fighters. So what, it's Lyman Good, Jimmy Rivera is the other guy, right? Yes, yes. What's it like fighting with them? They're animals. Well, Lyman is a complete beast. So is Jimmy. Jimmy's an excellent, excellent fighter. They're all just great human beings. And you wouldn't even know that they were badass if you were even just standing next to them. They're just regular people and really, really great down-to-earth type of people and, you know, my cup of tea, so to speak. But you wouldn't know that they were actually devastating fighters, you know, if you didn't see them train. So if you were to have a chance right now to kick someone in the face because of this Pharrell-demic going on in the virus, would it be the banks? Would it be the government? Would it be the Presidente? Who do you want to kick in the face with one of your sidewinder kick blasts that you sent me flying across the room with? Who are you upset with the most? I could probably say the Chinese government or whoever let this virus out. I would like to know whoever the person was that was responsible for this and didn't report it. That's person I would like to kick in the face. I'd like to kick the guy in the face that just flew that Cessna over my radio show when I was trying to do this program with you. I blame that guy for his flight pattern right over my Pharrella Palatial over here. So you know what's amazing about you is that you keep your spirits up, even though you're under tremendous strain and stress and pressure. Your family's all messed up. Have you talked to your family back in Brooklyn? What do you, uh, they think of what you're going through? You know, it's horrible. And, you know, everybody just says, keep your head up. You're a winner and you came from nothing and you built your business from nothing. And, 
you'll come back and you'll build your business back up again and stay positive and that's what I'm trying to do. A lot easier said than done, but that's the only thing I can do. There really is nothing else. Just got to keep a positive attitude. I know my customers love our service and I'm confident that they will return. It's just a matter of when and how long we could hang on and that's why we need the banks in the interim. How about kids? They don't have to go to school anymore, it looks like, ever. So much for education. It's terrible. You know, the kids are hunkered down in the house, and my wife is home with them, and it's very, very stressful. She's been doing a great job scouring the house, you know, 30, 40 times a day. She's taking care of the kids. We're obviously feeding the kids, you know, as much as they want. They're eating like hurdlers, and... She's doing a great job. I got to take my hat off to her. She's doing a great job at home, and I know she's under a lot of stress and a lot of pressure of being locked in the house herself, and she has to become school teacher, lunch maid, and tutor, and everything else on top of it, chef and home cleaner, so she's really stepped up to the plate and doing an excellent job, and you know, my kids are trying to get through this as best as they can, too. I know how bored they are. Well, I hope you get what you're looking for. I hope this all turns around for you. I hope that you get these loans. I hope they save face and get everybody the money they need to keep their businesses going and I know you'll turn it around and I know your businesses are super successful and you're great at what you do and your company is incredible and everyone knows it. It's a five-star company. Everyone in New York City knows about it and everyone knows you're the best at what you do. I pray to God that it turns around for you. I'm always thinking of you. I'm always hoping for the best for you and God willing and God speed with this disaster that it goes away and that you get back to normalcy and get your life back in order. I'm sorry you have to go through all this. I'm always thinking about you, so I just hope it all goes away and that you get your life back. Thanks for coming on the Pharrell on the Bench podcast, dude, and always the best of luck to you and the best of health. Thank you, brother, and same to you and your family. Please stay healthy. All right, now don't touch me. Want to be the next Daily Fantasy Millionaire? Dunk on your NBA DFS competition with DailyRoto.com and dominate on FanDuel and DraftKings this season. Compete with the pros with DailyRoto.com, Optimizer, and the most accurate projections in NBA DFS, plus lineup alerts, breaking news, late swap support, and much more. Save 10% on winning NBA DFS advice with promo code DUNK. Visit DailyRoto.com backslash dunk to learn more. Ever wondered how a book gets made into a movie? Or how to master the art of cooking? Either way, we've got you covered with the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast. I'm Alan Nevins, a literary agent and talent manager. And I'm Joey Santos, a columnist and celebrity chef. On our podcast, we're going to be serving you a fresh perspective of the entertainment industry alongside our favorite celebrity guests. As we like to say, we don't dish, we serve. Listen and follow Two Guys from Hollywood on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll talk at you soon.